It is now. <coughs> we are in 2 Timothy chapter 4 this morning. Before we get started, let's have a word of prayer and then we can uh, jump in. By the way, I feel much better this week than last week. So hopefully we'll be able to keep it together this week. <coughs> let's pray. Lord, thank you for the opportunity that we can open your word. Thank you for reminding us of your plan for us, your will for us, and most importantly, your love for us. And so I pray you'll help us this morning as we spend our time looking at these people that are contained in your word, that are described in your word, that we will be challenged and encouraged and reminded of um, your love for us again. In your name I pray, amen. We are wrapping up quickly, well, maybe not quickly, but we are wrapping up 2 Timothy chapter 4. We will be in 2 Timothy 4 for a few more weeks, but we're in the final concluding matters of 2 Timothy chapter 4. <coughs> if you remember, if you were here last week, we were looking at, uh, I was introducing the idea that I've talked about in past times, but introducing it more formally, the idea that there are many characters in the, in the scriptures, Old and New Testament, there are many characters. And I have often been interested in the characters of the scriptures, but for the wrong reason. Because I think, as with most Christians, we find ourselves thinking about a lot of the characters in the, in the scriptures as being heroes, but they're not. There's only one hero, as we said the last week. There's only one hero, hero in the scripture, and that's Jesus Christ. No one else is a hero. The story is about Jesus. The story is not about Paul or Titus or Timothy or, or Abraham or anybody else. Those are players in the story. And they serve a very important purpose, but the focus is on Christ. However, at the same time, it's interesting to consider the characters. The characters are given to us very purposefully in this, in this sweeping, historically redemptive story that God gives us that we call the 66 books of the Bible. These, these people that are described, some ex described in, in, over a long haul like Joseph, some over incredibly small snapshots, like we'll see today, are all given to us for our instruction. Some of them are given to our instruction in good ways, and some are given in bad ways. Some are given as, as, as encouragements and exhortations to realize this is what it looks like to live for Christ, to love Christ, to be loved by Christ. Others are given to us to say, this is what it shouldn't look like, and this is what it looks like not to be loved. This is what it looks like to rebel. This is what it looks like to, uh, to oppose. Last week we were looking at Demas mo for the most part. If you remember, Demas left Paul because he loved the present world. This is just a reminder as an example. We saw it last week. You'll notice right away in verse uh, 9 and 10, he, Paul writes to Timothy and says, Do your best to come to me soon, for Demas, in love with this present world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. And as we mentioned last week, it is interesting that what Paul does is he chooses the word love for love as agape, the same word that he used in verse um, 8 when he says, Henceforth there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. Same word. Demas, the very two verses later, 
Paul describes as loving, but not loving God, instead loving the world. That's okay. That's okay. You try to turn on the strobe light here? Oh, the fan I think is I I, th I think it's the, the side switches or something like that. No, no, no. No. Charles will get it. Rather than having a strobe effect during the service here, we'll let you take care of it. Yeah, exactly. So th the picture in last week that we saw is here's this guy Demas as we talked about last week who who loved Paul, seemingly loved God, was serving with Paul for the glory of God, the advancement of the gospel, but then for some reason something else was more important to him in Thessalonica. He found the things that the world offered more valuable than the, the, what, what, what God offered. And so as a result, he left and went to Thessalonica, which brings us to our text today. Starting in verse 9 again, we'll read to the end of the chapter. Do your best to come to me soon, for Demas, in love with this present world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. Crescens has gone to Galatia, Titus to Dalmatia. Luke alone is with me. Get Mark and bring him with you, for he is very useful to me in ministry. Tychicus I have sent to Ephesus. When you come, bring the cloak that I left with Carpus at Troas, also the books, and above all, the parchments. Alexander the coppersmith did me great harm. The Lord will repay him according to his deeds. Beware of him yourself, for he strongly opposed our message. At my first defense, no one came to stand by me, but all deserted me. May it not be charged against them. But the Lord stood by me and strengthened me, so that through me the message might be fully proclaimed and all the Gentiles might hear it. So I was rescued from the lion's mouth. The Lord will rescue me from every evil deed and bring me safely into his heavenly kingdom. To him be glory forever and ever. Amen. Greet Prisca and Aquila and the household of Onesiphorus. Erastus remained at Corinth, and I left Trophimus, who was ill, at Miletus. Do your best to come to me before winter. Eubulus sends greetings to you, as do Pudens and Linus and Claudia and all the brothers. The Lord be with your spirit. Grace be with you. You'll notice there's just this laundry list of people. And that's why we're, we're focusing on all these different people. Uh, Paul, very specifically, under the guidance of the Holy Spirit, gives a list of all these people. So we don't want to skip by them. We, first of all, in our text, before we get into verse 11 and, or verse 10 and following, the end of 10 and following, I want to remind you what 9 through the end of the chapter is all about. We said it last week. If you weren't here, I need to inform you what it's all about. And if you were here, I need to remind you. Why is verse 9 and following so important? Because of the end of verse 8. What Paul says at the end of verse 8 is not only is there a crown of righteousness laid up for him, but it's also laid up for those who have, as we just said, what? Loved his appearing. And which begs the question, what does it look like to love his appearing? Doesn't it? And Paul answers the question, what does it mean to love his appearing in verse 8? Or verse 7, I mean. What does it look like to love his appearing? Because certainly Paul loves his appearing. What does it look like to love his appearing? Verse 7 tells us, I fought the good fight, I finished the race, I've kept the faith. That's what it looks like to love his appearing. 
Now, as I said two weeks ago when we looked at this text, Paul was at the end of it. We're in the middle of it. So we would change it to, if we were talking about in the middle, I am fighting the good fight. I am running the race. I am keeping the faith. If we are, we are people who, what? Love is appearing. If we're not, then we don't love is appearing. So nine and following are basically trying to give illustrations of what it means to love is appearing. Or, conversely, to not love is appearing. So Paul is challenging Timothy and the readers and hearers in the church to do is to ask ourselves, I would argue, am I one who loves appearing or am I one who doesn't? Do I love is appearing or don't I? Am I characterized by, go back to verse 7, fighting the good fight? Am I characterized by running the race? Am I characterized by keeping the faith? Now, in order to truly, really understand verses se verse 7, you have to do what? You have to look at chapters 1, 2, and 3 in the beginning of 4. Because 1, 2, 3 in the beginning of 4 explain what all three of those are. We looked at that a couple weeks ago. In fact, he addresses all three of those specifically earlier in the book. He uses the same thing of, of running, for example. And so it's important that we try to connect those dots. So before you say, yeah, I keep the faith. Yeah, I'm running the race of Christianity. Yeah, I'm fighting the good fight. We need to, you need to look at 2 Timothy. I'm not going to regurgitate it again because we've done it again and again. But it's important that we look at that and ask ourselves. So verse 9 and following are giving us examples of what it looks like to do this, to live this way, what it looks like to not. Last week we looked at Demas. And we find that Demas deserted. And if, just a reminder, what I said last week, I would argue that if you talked to Demas and asked him, do you love Jesus, he would say, yes. I don't think Demas would have at all said that he's, uh, he's abandoned Christ. The issue is not what he thinks about whether he loves Jesus or not. The issue is for Paul, what? That he loves something else. That Christ has become peripheral. That Christ has become not central for Demas. There was a point in time when Christ was central for Demas. Christ was essential to Demas. As evidenced by, he was proclaiming Christ. He was spreading the gospel. He was ministering Christ to a lost and dying world. He was ministering Christ to save people. The evidence was he was fighting the good fight. He was running the race. He was keeping the faith. But now, Paul would argue whether he would say he loves Jesus or not. Paul would say, no, he doesn't. That's the deception, by the way. We can think we love Jesus when we really don't. Because Jesus has no longer become something essential and primary and central to their life. Christ isn't from him, through him, to him. To him be glory forever, amen. But other things are instead. And so as a result, Christ becomes one of many, but not the only. And so for Paul, he's deserted me because 
he found other things, whatever they are, in Dalmatia, more beautiful, more valuable, more worthwhile of his life. The same as the churches in Asia. They're still churches. Chapter 1. They're still churches. And yet, Paul says, they've left me. He didn't. He specifically didn't say they left Jesus. He specifically said they left me. And what he means by that is they're no longer following my teaching. They're no longer clinging to the truth. There's the same problem the Corinthian church was going through. I didn't mention this last week, but it's the same problem the Corinthian church was going through. Paul writes the church in disarray in 1 Corinthians and says, dude, you guys, are, you guys all got all these issues. You need to straighten them out. And he lists them all out. Boom, boom, boom. There's like six of them. These are your issues. You need to deal with them. You need to repent, and you need to stand up for truth. And you know what they did? They did all of them. They followed him to the letter. Now, you'd think that Paul would write 2 Corinthians and say, good job. Does he? No. Quite to the contrary. He writes them, and he, he quite literally rips their face off. If you read 2 Corinthians, because they went from bad to worse. Because at first, they were doing all sorts of things wrong. They were functioning really, really poorly as a church. They responded to what he said and corrected it. And then Paul had to write again to them, 2 Corinthians, and say, things have gotten a whole lot worse. Now you're starting to move beyond what you were before because now you're starting to reject me as a true apostle. You're rejecting my message. And you're actually accusing me of being a thief and stealing the money that you gave for the Jerusalem church. Does that sound like it's getting better or worse? It's worse, isn't it? But Paul still calls him church. He still does. They're moving the wrong direction. They're leaving him. That doesn't mean Paul thinks he's so great, but he knows he's carrying the, the true message. Galatian church, same thing. What does he write to them in Galatia? He writes to the church in Galatia, and he says, what to them? He says, I can't believe how quickly you turn from the truth. Who has come in and bewitched you? Why? Because they're turning from Paul. They're turning from what he's proclaiming. They would certainly claim to be believers. They would certainly claim that they're Christians. Then Paul would say, you're turning from me. That's why at the end of 2 Corinthians he says, you need to examine yourself to see if you're of the faith. Well, that's why I say all that to say, this is what's going on with Demas. Same thing. It's not that he's saying, I'm not a Christian. What's happening is he's moving from true Christianity to what we could call Christianity light. He's turning away, away from Paul, as in what Paul is saying isn't as important to me anymore as what the Thessalonians are offering. It's much more subtle than what we think. So that's, that's the background. And so that Paul starts off with Demas to challenge Timothy to watch out because quickly this happens. Quickly we move from being Demas before to being Demas after. It happens. The only who, he who perseveres to the end will be saved. 
Once we get past Demas in verse 10, we come to two other people. Crescens has gone to Galatia, Titus to Dalmatia. Now, this is different. Remember, we said this is all about what it looks like to love Jesus, and the love is appearing. Got it? So this is a total change, I would argue. He presents Demas as somebody very evil who is in love with the, with the present world. All he says about Cretans and Titus, interestingly enough, is they are doing what? They've gone somewhere. You know what's happening here, I believe? He real quickly is saying these two people, Crescens and Titus, I would argue, are longing for his return. And it's evidence because they're out ministering. That's what they're doing. They're out glorifying Christ. They're out ministering. It's, it's, it's kind of a consistent um, presentation. He doesn't, he doesn't say, oh, my goodness, he's so amazing. Look at this guy, Titus. He's so amazing. Look what he's doing. We know what Titus is doing, right? Titus is doing what? What? He's sharing the word that's true, but what do we know about Titus? Anybody know? Because there's a book written to him. There's a letter written to Titus. What's Titus doing? Okay, but what else is he doing? He's searching for elders in all these different cities where Paul planted churches, right? He's searching for elders and establishing elders in all these churches. He's looking for people. He's ministering to people. I would argue, Christian, the same thing. We don't know anything about the guy. He's just some nameless, faceless guy that Paul presents as this is what it looks like to love is appearing. To love is appearing means that I'm doing what? I'm exactly. I'm verse 7. Loving his, peer, his appearing and looking forward to his appearing means that I am, I am doing what? I'm ministering. Or to put it a different way, what does it look like? It looks like, as Paul said earlier, the love of Christ does what? Controls me. Here are two people who the love of Christ are controlling. They're doing what? They're ministering. They're proclaiming. They're exhorting. They're preaching. They're, they're, they're doing what chapter 4, verse 1 says, I charge in the presence of God in Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing and his kingdom, preach the word, be ready in season and out of season, reprove, rebuke, exhort with complete patience and teaching, for the time will come when people won't want that. Right? That's the church in the last days. They don't want that. So Paul tells Timothy to do that. And he puts these two people out there right off the bat and says, here's two that are doing it. This is what it looks like. They're going to these last days churches. And they're doing what? They're ministering. That's what counts to them. That's what's important to them. That's what, they're, they're, that, that, that's what makes their, their heart beat. That's, what, that's their reason for getting up in the morning. It's not anything other than ministering Christ. And these are people who will receive the crown of righteousness on that day. From there, he moves on to verse 11. 
Luke alone is with me. Now, that's going to become interesting in just a little bit, but Luke is the same guy who wrote the book of Luke and the book of Acts. And you find Luke showing up with Paul quite regularly through the scriptures. And this one thing that's very interesting about Luke is the track record, the incredibly long track record of being faithful. It's not a shot in the, pan, uh, in the dark. It's not a flash in the pan. It's just long, steady, glorifying Christ, walking faithfully. Outside of writ two written books, there's not a whole lot said about him. The two books he wrote occasionally shows up little glimpses. What you find out over and over and over again is what? He just loves Jesus. And it oozes out of him continually. Now, what does that do with here at this point? This is what's really intriguing. Here's Luke. And I'm just going to give you a little glimpse of what's yet to come in the text. But here's Luke. Paul says, Luke alone is with me. Why is he single that out? You know why he singles that out? This is about 64 A.D. Rome has burned. He's in Rome. Nero has accused Christians of it. Because Nero has accused Christians of it, to use a scapegoat so he's not at fault, the people of Rome now what? What do you think? They hate Christians. They're, they're persecuting Christians everywhere. They're looking every way possible to kill and persecute Christians. This is a time when Christians are being fed to the lions. They're being burned at the stake. They're being tortured. They're being dismembered. They're being, they're being rammed onto poles and stuck up on poles and lit on fire for Nero's garden parties, to light them at night. This is the time frame that we find ourselves in. What does it look like to love his appearing? Luke is here with me. It doesn't mean he's in prison, because he's not. He's a free man. What that means, is, all you got to do is think about it and process it through. What does that mean? What it means is this. It means that day after day, here's Luke. Gets up in the morning, takes a shower, or whatever they did, has breakfast, maybe stops by at Wawa, rides his chariot over to the prison, walks up to the prison guard and says, I'm here to see Paul. Try that one on for size. I'm here to see Paul. I'm here to hang out with Paul. I brought him his breakfast, lunch, and dinner. Because they didn't feed the prisoners. I brought him his breakfast, lunch, and dinner, and I want to hang out with him. I bet you that there were occasions when he got beat got the stuffing beat out of him by the prison guards just for fun. He didn't care. Every day he got up, he'd go to the prison, maybe not every day, but a lot of days. He would go there to minister to Paul. 
to encourage Paul, to pray with Paul, to talk about Jesus together with Paul, knowing this could be the last day of freedom he'd ever have. You realize that? Every day, Luke got up faithfully and went and hung out with Paul as much as he possibly could, knowing that the best case scenario is he probably would be killed immediately. But anything else than that would have been horrible. But he'd go anyway. Because he loved Jesus' appearance. See, when we start thinking about it, it, it kind of changes things a little bit, doesn't it? About what it means to love his appearing. That's Luke. Paul singles out Luke and says, this is what it looks like. Tom and I were talking this morning about the Tour de France. I don't know if anybody else is into the Tour de France, but I kind of am. Um, I, was, I was watching a little bit of highlights on, um, I forgot what day of the, week, uh, of the week. I was not feeling well this week, as you know. Um, and <coughs> there was a, a uh, guy from France. He'd, he'd been in four or five Tour de France's, and he had never won yet, any stage. And with about 30 miles to go, he broke away from the pack and got about 40 seconds ahead of the pack. And he's pedaling like a, like a mad dog out there to stay in the lead. With five, I think it was five kilometers to go, all uphill, he's given everything he's got, and his hamstring cramped up, or the quad muscle, whatever it is back there. It's totally cramped up. You saw it. It was like all of a sudden he stood up, and he's trying to stretch it out. He's trying to be going really slow. And they all have headphones, and their coaches are talking to them, you know. And you know that the guy's trying to catch up with him. The coach is screaming at him. He cramped up. Go! You got five kilometers. Come on, go! And you can just see the seconds just declining as, as the chase is catching up with him. And he's trying his hardest to stretch out. And finally, he sits down, and he starts pedaling. And you know the cramp's not away. His face is all grimaced up, and he just starts cranking and cranking cranking all the way through. He gains all the time he lost back to 40 seconds again. All uphill. And crosses the finish line. Wins the stage. He doesn't have a hope in the world. doesn't have a hope in the world of winning the Tour de France. But he won a stage. I remember watching and thinking, that was incredible. And I started thinking it through. I started thinking, that's what it means to love to win right? To long to win. Nothing else mattered to him. Pain didn't matter. Suffering didn't matter. A cramped muscle, a potential torn muscle, it didn't matter. He just had to keep going. I started thinking, I said, he doesn't have the Holy Spirit to accomplish this. Now he may be a believer, but the Holy Spirit is not all about, you gotta win Tour de France. I'm thinking, he was all in. He loved only one thing, and there was nothing that was going to distract him. Absolutely nothing was going to distract that dude from the finish line that day. All in. He loved the appearing of the finish line. And as soon as I thought about it, it's like, Second Timothy 4, 9. That's what it looks like to love his appearing. Nothing else matters. Luke, 
Nothing mattered. But Christ appearing, nothing else was relevant. Everything was interpreted by Christ appearing. Luke, don't go, because if you go, what's going to happen? They're probably going to imprison you. They're going to beat you, and you'll probably die. So? So what? I love his appearing, and so I love others who love his appearing. I just want to go worship with him. I want to encourage him. He needs encouragement. I want to exhort him. He needs exhorting. I want to help him. He needs help. He's going to go. And Paul was the same way, wasn't he? When they said, don't go to Rome, he said, what? He said, shut up. I don't want to hear anything about it. But they'll kill you there. So? He loved his appearing. And that's what we find in Luke. Luke is alone with Jesus. Now, I don't know about you, but at this point in time, as I think about it, I'm kind of undone. Are you? I'm kind of undone by that because that's not really me. How about you? I don't know about you, but I get distracted all the time. I don't know about you, but I find myself with priorities all screwed up a lot. I don't know about you, but I find so often I'm like, don't really care. What do we do with that? Well, the next one is so intriguing to me. Luke alone is with me. Get Mark and bring him with you, for he's very useful to me for ministry. This is amazing. Let me give you the backdrop to to, to the statement. Paul is there. (coughs) Luke is there alone. Paul writes to Timothy and says, twice he says to him, once already, once later, come quickly to me. The second time he says, come before winter. (coughs) But here he says, when you come, make sure you grab Mark and bring Mark because he's really valuable. Why is that so important? Here's why. Because there was a time when Mark wasn't important to him. At a time when Mark was incredibly unimportant to him. You see, in Paul's missionary journeys, there was a point in time when he was with Barnabas and they were getting ready to go on a missionary journey. And Barnabas and Paul had a significant falling out because Barnabas wanted Mark to come with him, with the two of them. And Paul said, absolutely not. And Mark said, I want, or I'm, I'm sorry, Barnabas said, I want Mark to come. And Paul said, no. Barnabas said, why? And Paul said, because he's unfaithful. Because he's unfaithful. You know what Paul's really saying? Because he's not evidencing that he, the, he's, a, he's all about the love of Christ's appearing. And so I don't want to minister with him. He's not valuable to me, is what he's in a sense, in essence saying. He's not valuable to me. But here, in 2 Timothy 4, at the close to the end of Paul's life, what's Paul saying? He's incredibly valuable. Bring him. I, I, I really would like to have Mark close. 
Barnabas and Mark went off on their own and ministered on their own, and Paul and Silas went out on their ministry. And they went out with blessings. Paul gave them blessing, let them go, but, but he couldn't minister with them because he was not faithful. This should be really encouraging to you and I. If you are like I would argue most of us are, and you look at yourself and say, yeah, you know, <laughs> Steve, I'm definitely not Luke, Luke-esque. I'm definitely not Paul-esque. I'm definitely not Timothy-esque. I find myself more often than not more like Demas. I find myself more often than not more like the churches in Asia. I find myself more like 2 Timothy 3, 1 through 9 than like the end of the chapter. So is Mark. So much so that Paul said, nope, not ministering with him, not doing it. And the scriptures describe it almost like Paul was angry about the whole thing. He was very aggressive about it. Now, we don't know the in-between story, but I can tell you what happened. Don't have to be a rocket science to figure that one out. John Mark repented. Changed. Spirit was at work in his life, and he was he moved from being someone who, who was not really loving his appearing to someone who was. We don't know the specifics of how Mark wasn't what he should have been. He certainly wasn't what he should have been. But something changed. Through repentance and growth and change, he became someone who loves his appearing. It's interesting, after talking about, <coughs> on the one hand, Demas, and then these two that are serving well, and then Luke, who's serving well, he turns back to someone who wasn't doing well but mattered. as a word of encouragement, as it were, to those who, down through the millennia, two millennia, would read this text and find themselves looking at the text and saying, I'm not in it, in the good category. I don't fit. It's not me. Maybe I'm not as bad as Demas, Maybe I'm not as bad as the churches in Asia. Maybe I'm not as bad as what is described in 2 Timothy 3, 1 through 9. But I'm certainly not verse 7. And I'm certainly not the end of verse 9. Or verse 8, I mean. That's why he gives us If we're not people who love his appearing, and that's the character of our lives, and we're still alive, you know what that means? There's hope. Our God is a forgiving God. Our God is a restoring God. Our God is a transforming God. Our God is a God who works utterly and completely and changes us. 
there is still hope. We can be, as Mark was, someone who wasn't faithful, and then by the grace of God and the power of God, transformed into faithfulness. What's the magical formula for that? Well, there's no magical formula, but it, it is the same thing we've been talking about every step of the way. We seek him, we find him, right? You seek him, you find him. And we seek him with all our heart. We seek him while he may be found. If we call on him while he's near, if we confess our sins, God promises to work. He promises, remember? I mean, how many times have we said it before? The idea that if he began the good work in us, what? He will continue to bring it to completion, right? Now, I want to remind you, as we've said so many times before, that does not mean he's just saying he'll take us from salvation, that is justification, to glorification. It's talking about he'll take us from sanctification through the process called sanctification, from justification through sanctification to glorification. He promises it. Turn to him. Pursue him. Know him. What's interesting about John Mark is he went from useless in ministry to useful what? In ministry. What, ta- what, 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 what Timothy was told by Paul was Mark has been transformed. That's the power of Christ. He's been transformed. And as a result, I who once found Mark useless for ministry, now incredibly useful, valuable. Someone worthy of partnering with in the cause of Christ in the midst of prison and Rome and hatred and persecution. Mark is useful. Can I just say this? Oh, that that would be said of us. Oh, that that we would be that kind of person. Mark. I would present to you this way. What's past is past. If you sit there and look at yourself and say, yeah, I haven't been where I ought to be. I haven't glorified Christ where I should. I get distracted. I find other things much more valuable. I love the present world. I don't know Christ. The reality is it's not too late. What Mark is here for is to tell us in this text, it's not too late. If we are his child, it's not too late. Just as God was in the business of transformation, then he's in the business of transformation today. He's in the business of changing people's lives for his glory. That's what he's about. If I would just say this real quickly, we're going to go through one or two more verses, and then we're going to stop. He says, Tychicus, verse 12, I've sent to Ephesus, which is another 
turn back to the Crescens and Titus group, here is somebody else that's out ministering. Now, I want to say this real quickly about the three that we've mentioned that we've just briefly mentioned. That is, I mentioned that there was a lot of persecution going on in Rome. Don't miss the point that it's not isolated to Rome. These people are not out in these other towns safe because they're not in Rome. In that day, as Rome went, so did the whole area. So the people in Rome hated the Jews, the Christians at this point in time. You know what's going to happen? The people in Galatia and Thessalonica and Ephesus are going to as well. And so the persecution's everywhere. And these people are going out to these towns glorifying Christ. Why? Because they love his appearance. One last thing before we close. Verse 13. When you come, Timothy, bring the cloak that I left with Carpus at Troas, also the books, and above all the parchments. Now, we have to speculate on this passage because that's all the data we have on it. So it's a little bit of speculation, but I think it's a very legitimate and right speculation. <coughs> it is this. First of all, when he says bring the cloak, obviously he says come before winter, it's going to get cold. So that's a simple, just bring the cloak. I gotta stay, I'd like to stay warm as long as I live. Bring the books. Don't know what that is. If I was a guessing man, I would guess it's probably some of the commentaries he wrote. Some thoughts he's written. Maybe some messages he's written up. Non-inspired things. The parchments, I would argue, are most likely, almost, almost absolutely, going to be some personal copies of the scripture he wrote. Because they didn't have printing presses. They copied by hand. And most likely what Paul is talking about is he's talking about Old Testament parchments, copies that most likely he personally wrote that he left with this gentleman to hold on to for safekeeping, which says something about him, by the way. Because if they're hating Christians, they're looking if they're hating Christians and they're looking for Christians, one of the places they're going to look is where? In your belongings. And yet he's holding on to Paul's writings. He's, writing, he's holding on to Paul's parchments. Most likely Old Testament copies that he personally wrote. And he says here, <coughs> When you come, bring the cloak that I've left with Carpus at Troas, also the books. And notice what he says. And what? Above all, bring the parchments. Listen, if you can't bring the cloak, okay. If you can't bring the books, okay. Above everything else, bring the parchments. Now I want to remind you who this guy is. This is Paul. He's written like 17 books of the New Testament. Before he was saved, he was like a preeminent scholar on the Old Testament. You know what matters to Paul more than anything else? More than anything else. Not being warm. Not his thoughts about the Bible. What matters to Paul more than anything else is not being safe, not being secure, not being healthy, not having enough food, not having 
um, any freedom, what matters to Paul is only one thing. There's only one thing I want you to remember. If you forget everything else, if, if you lose everything else, if, if nothing else can come, I want the Word. That's what I want. The Word of God. Now, I want you to think about it. If Timothy's going to walk into a prison in Rome carrying parchments, Old Testament scriptures, what do you think, how do you think that's going to go over? What do you think? You think he's going to walk in and say, I got these parchments I'm bringing in. Oh, okay, go ahead. I mean, you can't do that today, can you? You walk into prison and say, I got these things I want to bring in to the prisoner. Yeah, I think we'll look through them first. Makes sense, doesn't it? And so they grab the scrolls, they open them up, and the first thing they see is that the scrolls are Scripture. And in Rome, that meant anti-Nero. Timothy lays them out. Most likely what's going to happen. He's going to get his own cell at best. But Paul says, listen, bring the parchments because there's nothing more valuable. Now, please don't miss the point. He's not saying there's nothing more valuable than a parchment. He's saying there's nothing more valuable than the truth. If I love his appearing, then I, what I want is what? Reminders of his appearing and reminders of the one who will be appearing. Does that make sense? And so for Paul, the guy who knows the Bible better than you and I ever would, what he wants more than anything else is to study it. You realize, even for Paul, even if they get to Paul, you know what's going to happen if Paul has the scrolls, the parchments? You know what's going to happen? This is going to create more persecution, more ridicule, more hatred. He becomes more of a target. And Paul says, okay, that's cool. Because I love his appearing. If I'm going to be persecuted, the tool of my interpretation of that persecution is what? He's returning. The interpretation of the persecution, the mockery, the ridicule, the imprisonment, the impending death, is Christ and his love for me and me being with him. That's the interpreter. That's the one that explains it. The guy who was running Tour de France, he was looking at the cramp and saying, finish line. He wasn't saying, man, that hurts. It's not worth it. It never even crossed his mind whether it was worth it. It didn't even dawn on him to even ask that question. He just sat his butt back down in that seat and started cranking to get to the finish line because that's all that mattered. For Paul, that's all that matters. Finishing the race. 
no cost too high. And every cost is informed and explained and interpreted by the one who's going to be soon appearing. And that's what we find in Paul. So, let me close on this. <clears throat> what Paul wants the reader of this text to do is ask themselves, who am I in the story? We have all these characters in the story. We have a few more coming. But who am I in the story? I don't care who you are in the story. You're not a hero. Paul certainly even wasn't. But who are you? Are you kind of Paul-esque? If you are, press on. Keep seeking. Keep striving. As he said to Timothy in chapter 3. You, however, verse 10, and then he talks about how he has up to this point in time. But verse 14, but as for you, continue in what you've learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you've learned it, and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the scriptures, with the sacred writings, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. Continue. Are you more Paul-esque? Not, not, not saying you're perfect, but are you more Paul-esque? Continue. This is not the time to slow up and slack. Rejoice that God has done that. And by the way, continue to minister to others who need help in that journey. You look at Paul, you say, yeah, that's not even close to me. Timothy, no, that's not me. Crescens, Titus, Luke, Mark, Tychicus, yeah, not me. I'm not Demas, but not that. So the answer is to repent. and return. I want to remind you, repentance is not merely a prayer we offer. Right? Repentance is not merely a, I'm sorry, please forgive me. Repentance is a change of mind with change of response, change of direction. It is both. Are you Demas? The answer is the same. Like the church in Asia, the answer again is the same. Are you like the Second Timothy three one through nine church at the end days? The answer is the same. And I want to encourage you with that. If, if uh, this doesn't sound like encouragement, perhaps, but it is. If you look at it and say, you know, I really am more like the church in Second Timothy three one through nine. I'm absolutely distracted by the world. I'm absolutely distracted into all the wrong things. I say I love Jesus, but the evidence is slim pickings at best. I want to remind you that you're still alive. 
Now, you may say, say that's, that's so trite, Steve, but it is not. What happened to Ananias and Sapphira? They were instantly gone, dead. Because they lied. So if you find yourself more like the church in 2 Timothy 3, 1 through 9, you know you lie every time you say you love Jesus. Do you realize that? And yet we still breathe. We still breathe. Why? Because of the mercy of God calling us to repentance. He could very easily have left Ananias and Sapphira still alive and breathing. If he'd called to repentance, couldn't he? And he didn't. But he has for you and I. We're still breathing. The heart's still beating. The breath is still going in and out. Mercy. But God doesn't cry forever. He is long-suffering. But he does not cry forever. Today is the day if you find yourself being in these other categories. And if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Now again, some would say, Steve, these messages are so hard and so harsh and so, and so unencouraging. Can I just say two things real quickly and we're going to close. In chapter 4, verse 1, I want to remind you that he said, I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing and his kingdom, preach the word, be ready in season and out of season, and then he tells the specifics, reprove, rebuke, exhort, with complete, complete patience and teaching. Now, I'm not saying there's no place for encouragement and comfort. There is. But Paul, for the church of the last days, obviously singles out reprove, rebuke, and exhort with great patience and teaching. He says, you know where the encouragement is? Anybody have any idea where the encouragement is? When we repent. When we repent. That's where the encouragement is. When we turn to Christ and he abundantly pardons. When we turn to Christ and he abundantly forgives our sins and restores us, and ministers to us, and encourages us by, by bringing us along in our spiritual growth. I'm absolutely convinced many of us don't grow spiritually the way we ought to for a really huge reason. Because rather than listening to the exhortation and the rebuke, we're looking for encouragement when what we need is the others. And we're, we're trying to find a different type of encouragement, which is a faux encouragement not real. If, if I may use this really silly illustration, m most of you know that there was a point in time when I weighed over 270 pounds. And I remember it like it was yesterday. I knew I was fat. I knew I was. And that's not a moral statement. That's just a factual statement. I knew I was fat. 
I'd say to all my Christian buddies, man, I'm so fat. You know what they'd all say to me? No, they'd say, no, you're not. Everybody would say the same thing. No, you're not. Some people would say, no, Steve, you're, take a guess, what? You're not fat, you're, what? Adipose? I don't even know what that means, but thank you. Uh, <laughs> no speaking in tongues in our church, Tom. <laughs> what does that mean? <laughs> no, they would say, they'd say, no, you're not fat, Steve, you're just big boned. That's a lot of bone, let me tell you. And you know, for the longest time, you know, I started saying to myself, yeah, yeah, I'm okay. I'm okay. I'm not bad. I'm okay. Maybe a little overweight, but I'm okay. <laughs> I found encouragement in things that were not encouraging. They were lies. They were false encouragement. I went back to those, a number of those people after I started taking off a lot of weight. I said, why did you keep saying that I wasn't, over, uh, that I wasn't fat? Well, I didn't want to hurt your feelings. Serious? You don't mind that I'm killing myself. You don't mind. I'm believing a lie. And you, 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 you continue to lie to me to help me down that path. Like, Serious? And that's what we're doing spiritually. We're looking for encouragement when we need to be looking at the exhortation. We're looking for encouragement and comfort when we should be looking at the rebuke and embracing the rebuke. And you know what's really sad? If I might just throw this out here. There was only one person who challenged me with my weight. It was an unsaved person. I said to an unsaved friend one time, we were hiking up a hill, and I said, man, I'm so fat. I'm like, <laughs> and he's like, doo, 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 doo. And I, I said, I'm so fat. He looked, he stopped, he turned around, looked at me. He said, Steve, just shut up and do something about it then. He turned around and started walking again. I was like, yeah, I guess I better. I had to receive the rebuke. I desperately needed the rebuke. Now, some would say, yeah, that's kind of harsh, isn't it? Rebuke is always harsh. Exhortation is always harsh. You know why it is? It's always harsh because we want to go that way. The rebuke or exhortation says, go that way. And so, therefore, it always feels harsh. But when we receive it, what does Hebrews 12 say? Hebrews 12 says, no discipline seems good in the moment. But for the one who responds rightly to it, what happens? Anybody know? The scriptures tell us it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness. That's where the encouragement is. That's where the comfort is. When we are bathed by the forgiveness of God. And the Spirit begins to transform us. And the, and the evidence that the Spirit is transforming us is what? that we find ourselves being controlled by the love of Christ. We're not being controlled by all these other things. So who are you in the story? Who am I in the story? That's what we need to ask ourselves. So 
They're certainly not heroes. He's the hero. That is Christ. What God calls us to is a look to the hero. Look to Christ. Confess our sins. Look to Christ. Enjoy the love of Christ. Revel in the love and forgiveness of Christ. You know what's going to happen? The love of Christ will control you. And you know what's going to happen? You're going to start to love his appearing. Long for his appearing. Perhaps today. Perhaps now. And if we love his appearing, we're going to live as if he's going to be appearing. Okay, so let me just say this. Our lamp is full of oil. Unlike the virgins we're in now. Lord, help us, <coughs> because too often we are more like the young John Mark. We are more like the church of the last day. We are more like the churches in Asia than we are like Paul and Timothy and Luke and the others that are listed. We get easily distracted. We, we find ourselves getting enthralled with things that just vanish. We find ourselves longing for things that have nothing to do with you. We find ourselves with hopes that have nothing or little to do with your glory. So, Lord, I pray that you would help us change us. Draw us to forgiveness, to repentance. And we ask you to transform us. You've promised to do so. And we ask you to fulfill your promise in us. And help us to discover that the forgiveness of Christ is more valuable because Christ who forgives is more valuable than anything. Praise our hearts in your name I pray.